Support for Charlotte Readers Podcast is provided by Park Road Books, the oldest and only independent bookstore in Charlotte, and by Charlotte Mecklenburg Library, a connector of readers, leaders, and learners with 20 locations and a 24-hour online presence. Support is also provided by members like you, and for that, we offer our gratitude along with some awesome member-only content. You can find out more about these member benefits at charlottereaderspodcast.com. Welcome to this Under the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where authors give voice to their written words. This is the Friday version of Charlotte Readers Podcast, where host Landis Wade and his author guests get under the covers. That's right. We get in and out because there are just too many interesting books and engaging authors in the region and not enough time. And just like the longer version of the show, you'll learn interesting facts about the authors and their books, and the authors will read their work. And also, like the longer version, you will find images, links, and information about the authors in the show notes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. We are a proud member of the Queen City Podcast Network, a uh, collection of Charlotte podcasts produced in and centering around the Queen City, and also a proud member of Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, broadcasting radio shows and podcasts about authors to a worldwide audience. I'm Landis Wade, the producer and host of this podcast. I'm a recovering trial lawyer. I'm the author of a trilogy of books where lawyers save Christmas, kind of a cross between My Cousin Vinny and Miracle on 34th Street, and I write stories, and I love books, and I love dogs, and I love beaches and mountains and fly fishing and sports and reading and more, and I also love getting under the covers with my authors. So let's get to it. Hey, listeners, welcome to the Sunday the Covers episode of Charlotte Readers Podcast. I'm pleased today to be uh, visiting with Lauren Jacobs. She's the author of Shalam Zion, Queen of Israel, a work of historical fiction that shines a light on a much forgotten Queen of Israel. Professor Kenneth Atkinson, author and biblical scholar, says that Lauren Jacobs has written an exciting novel that captures the spirit of the historical Queen Shalam Zion and her tumultuous world. It accurately reconstructs the details of her life and times through an engaging narrative that never fails to entertain and, and all the reader. Author Lauren Jacobs says that one of the purposes of this book is to display the value of female leadership, increase female representation in the ancient Near East, and add value to the theological discussion of female leadership. Lauren, welcome to the show all the way from Cape Town, South Africa. Hi, Landis. It's good to be with you and to all the wonderful listeners at the podcast today. So welcome. I'm very excited to be here. And uh, I think you said that I'm your first international guest. So now I'm very excited. Yeah, you really are. I just, and and it's, uh, you know, you reached out to me. I'm thinking, well, this is great. Charlotte Rears podcast has made it all the way to South Africa. (laughs) Such a cool podcast. I was like, this is so cool. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And so, and congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's it's really cool that you read that piece about Kenneth Atkinson because he's a American. So I think that that <laughs> that's really yeah. cool. But yeah, yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, and he studied it. Uh, he studies it from an academic standpoint. But what he said in the in the forward of your book, as I recall, is that uh, you were able to sort of bring it to life, which I found to be true as well when I read the book. And uh, uh, but before we talk about the book, I want to talk a little bit about you. You're you're a multi-award-winning author who focuses on the forgotten stories of women in history. Tell us why. I think it was very much not a conscious thing uh, that happened to me. 
uh, I start. I wrote my first book, uh, You Heard It. Also a bit of a tongue twister. You heard it. Uh, and that was in, I think it came out in 2016. And it was a, a book that appeared just in my life at a time where I was going through a very hard time in my own life, a lot of illness and sickness. And I discovered Shannon Zion's story, just a little bit about it, actually through an article that Professor Atkinson had actually written in an archaeological magazine. And I was really, really led to to her story as well and, and wanted to turn it into this book, which I did, but never, ever consciously realizing that I was telling women's historical stories. And that's what I wanted to do with my life until I was uh, invited to be a TED Talk speaker in 2018. And through that process, you know, the year you do a whole year of preparation, just even before you take to the stage, I realized that. I really want to do this because women's stories are so forgotten and, we, you know, there's a lot of stories that we do know. We know like the big stories, but there's a lot of forgotten stories. So my focus really is on the forgotten stories, which makes it a bit of a treasure hunt because there's not a lot known about a lot of different women. So you go on a journey and it's so epic. And I really believe, you know, when we look at the statistics of who writes the stories and what kind of stories gets told specifically from a historical perspective, men write the stories about other male figures. And that's not a sexist statement to make. I don't want to sound like that at all on the podcast today, but it, it is just statistically a fact, you know, and it's simply because maybe that's how it's been. And so to really change that narrative you know, some people say that if you can see somebody doing something, you can believe that you can do it as well. We need to see those representations of, of, of what who we want to be. And so that is part of why I have to tell these stories, because even women in leadership, we haven't told those stories enough. And so I think it's so important to have that representation and to continue to advocate for women's history and eventually learn that there were some amazing women out there. And as as women, we can be empowered by that example. So that's basically yeah. what it's come down to now. My wife and I were talking about uh, me getting ready to interview you today and, and talking about this uh, women versus men uh, in the Bible thing. And she has a, a friend who sometimes will come up to her and say, now, why aren't there more stories about women in the Bible? And he does it all the time because he knows what answer she's going to give She because she says, because the men were writing the stories. You know? Exactly. exactly. <laughs> and so, uh, all right. So you're a historian too, with a number of postgraduate qualifications, uh, whose focus has been uh, ancient Near East uh, and in the world of Eastern women. And I'm just wondering what attracts you to that part of the world and that time in history? That's such a good question, and I think it's an interesting one. I remember being incredibly drawn to the Middle East, which, you know, as a field of study, we call it the ancient Near East. It should really be called the ancient Middle East because that's really what it is. But from a young age, I remember always staring at pictures of the pyramids, um, and that kind of happened to me since about the age of six years old, always reading ancient Near Eastern books. And about the age of 12, I discovered Christian Jacques, who wrote the Ramsey's series and who, I mean, those books became best-selling books. But I was 12 years old and reading those books, which are really for a more mature audience, but I took them out of the library and my parents were okay with it. And it, it just awakened something within me. And I 
didn't realize it subconsciously. I think it was something that was placed within me, you know, since I was I was little that I've been drawn to the ancient Near East. So I I never realized that it's been an awakening over the last few years that th- this is my focus. And also what I've done for the last decade is teach on women in, in the Bible, which is so great that you brought that point up because it's exactly that. Who was writing the stories at that time? I mean, it was so specific who was writing those stories and who's writing the Bible books, you know. The people had, the people that were writing were educated. They were of a certain kind of class and they were all men. Although we have a big movement today of scholarly reality that it could be that a woman wrote the book of Hebrews, but it's still a scholarly debate. And so the reality is that I think that time period has so many profound women in and we're dealing with the ancient Near East, which is quite a big space. You know, you got Persia, you got Egypt, you had all these different people groups and they had a lot of female leaders and a lot of strong women. So I think I'm just completely drawn to that time period. I'm not drawn to medieval history. I'm not drawn to the Tudor history. I just love that time period. And I think that it's got to do with who you are as a person. I just think you feel a passion for something and that's what happens. And there's a lot of women that I know, female writers that I know that are drawn to British history, you know, and like the medieval history and that kind of thing. That doesn't interest me at all. I just love the ancient Near East and we have to rely so much on archaeological findings. We don't know a lot about the ancient Near East, uh, you know, as much as what we would like to know. So we need to continue to discover that. And as we make new discoveries, we find new women's stories. And that for yeah. me is exciting. Yeah, that's great. we got a lot to talk about regarding this book. Before we do get under the covers, let's talk about the book cover itself. Uh, I'm looking at this uh, woman who, is that a crown on her head on, mm-hmm. the, on the cover of the book? And uh, of course, there are no pictures of this queen of Israel, right? I mean, you had to use your imagination. <laughs> Somebody did with this, but she's got a, a very purposeful look. Her eyes are clear and bright, uh, and her hair is blowing to one side. What was it? Were you were you involved in creating this, or or mm-hmm. having some input into it? <laughs> you know, with my first book, you heard it. I didn't have a say because obviously you know how that works with signing with All a right. big publishing house. They just All don't right. let you decide on anything. <laughs> It was just the day I took, you know, my first author's copy of Yehudit. Um, they were like, this is what it looks like. And yeah. I had to be satisfied. And I was. But with this book, I signed with a publishing house. Another it was a different one, but they allowed me to be part of the process. And so actually, the woman on the cover is a friend of mine. Um, her name is Annalise. And uh, I saw her one day and I just knew that she was my queen of Israel. And we we put this whole thing together. We had a makeup artist, a designer came on board. We went to a memorial site that's basically like a Grecian temple type place. And we had these photos done and I hired a professional photographer and we did this whole curated thing. It was so funny because while we were there, there were people walking by, of course, because it's a big tourist attraction and Somebody looked up at us and she was holding the sword and they said, this is really like a Game of Thrones vibe, you know, because while we were filming, we were filming some of it and we were taking photos. It was so fun. Um, But yes, I wanted it to be, I wanted, my first book was 
it it didn't the, the cover is not who or what I imagined you hooded to be or to look like. Um, my first book, she was wearing like a dress that they wouldn't have worn in that time. And I really didn't feel that it reflected who she was. It reflected the message in the book, but it didn't reflect who she was. With this, I was very specific. This has to be, when you look at her, you have to see that this is what, she, you know, Shalem Zian looked like to me, because like you said, we don't have any real pictures of her. So mm -hmm. I curated this whole thing and I wanted it to be the queen of Israel on the cover. Well, I didn't want it just to be someone had chosen this for me. And I knew this woman, Annalise, I know her, she's a friend. And I think that her heart reflects the heart of the character in the book. So it kind of just meshed together. Yeah, that's great. So listeners, you, you'll be able to see this in the show notes. Uh, she's got a, uh, a blue tinted cape. She's wearing white. Uh, she's gripping a sword. She's got a crown that uh, kind of reflects uh, the sword, and uh, she's got lipstick on too. They wear lipstick in the. Uh... <laughs> I was like, <laughs> really not using the lipstick. I was like, guys, can we take it off? <laughs> I really wanted to take it off. <laughs> yeah, <didn't> so <laughs> it, did, it didn't work. Anyway, anyway, they'll get the idea that she's she's intent on uh, on ruling her country. All right, you ready to get under the covers? Yes. Hey listeners, before we get under the covers, I'd like to share some benefits that are available to you, our listeners. If you sign up for our email list at our website, charlottereaderspodcast.com, uh, we will send you a, a free ebook, the first book in my Christmas courtroom trilogy. We promise not to spam you. That just takes way too much time. We just provide a bi-weekly newsletter to let uh, listeners know what's coming and uh, allow you to engage with the show. Also, if you'd like to support your uh, favorite local independent bookstore and get audiobooks at the same time, uh, you can join Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O.fm. And if you use the promo code Charlotte Reader, that's all one word. You may not be from Charlotte, but you can still be a Charlotte Reader to get this benefit. When you use that promo code, you're going to get uh, two books for the price of one when you join at uh, Libro's $14.99 monthly membership level. This is a great way to support uh, your local independent bookstore and get uh, great audiobooks uh, at the same time. So check it out. Okay, uh, we're talking now uh, about the uh, book Shalom Zion, uh, Queen of Israel, with uh, author Lauren Jacobs. And uh, Lauren, before we get started here, um, one of the things I learned is that this uh, this queen is the only woman mentioned and the Dead Sea Scrolls, um, and that some scholars, you've said, have tried to diminish her role in history because she was a woman. Um, and you start out the story, and this maybe just gives some context as the time period. You start out the story by saying that her story did not begin in the year of her birth, but her story began where a bloodied spear pierced the body of a lawless Jew ready to portray the law of his God. It began among the faithful thousand whose bodies were strewn across the Judean landscape at their refusal to bow down to the love of all things Greek. So we're kind of in the Hellenistic period. Is that when we're starting this mm -hmm. story? Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that time frame to ground us, uh, you know, in this, uh, in this area of time and this, uh, this sort of setting that this story takes place in. Hmm. So, you know, a lot of people will know about the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. And uh, Hanukkah really commemorates the story, uh, the story of one family, uh, the Maccabees family, you know, and it's a very 
pretty much a well-known story. A lot of people do know it. And the Maccabees was this family that, again, they didn't want to bow to all these things Greek. And the Greeks were coming in and they were invading Judea and they were preventing the Jewish people from practicing their religion, you know, uh, such as circumcision or new moons or feast days. And, and you know, those who didn't bow were killed. And so the Maccabees, the family they revolt against all things Greek. And that's where Shalom Zion's story starts because you had you had Matthias, who was the, the the father of the Maccabees family, and then he had five sons, and all of them get killed besides the last son, Simon, who actually, you know, eventually we know the Maccabees defeat the Greeks and the Greeks withdraw, and Judea or Israel becomes independent, and Simon becomes the ruler king, and he's the high priest, which is the first time that that actually happened, that the king would be high priest as well. And so Simon is actually Shalem Zion's grandfather. And so she is a direct uh, Maccabean descendant. And so she also married her cousin, who then, of course, we know as well is Maccabean descendant. And so it's the time period which the uh, you know, theologians and Bible scholars call the intertestamental period, that period where they say God went silent and there wasn't much happening. But that is not true at all. The, the history of that time period, this 400 years between the end of where people say in the Bibles, the book of Malachi towards the, you know, New Testament, this is where Shedem Zion's story is. It's where the Maccabees feature. And it's such a powerful place in history. So, it is that Hellenistic period. It's a time where the Judeans are fighting for their freedom and they get independence and they rule their country. You know, Shalom Zion's family rules her country for a very long time, but they fall in love with all things Greek as well. So, I mean, they name their children Alexander after Alexander the Great and they start to do the things that they actually fought against. They start to become what they were fighting against. And so she is very much an anomaly in her family because she's not that way at all. And she really holds fast to the examples of her first family members who revolted against the Greek things. So it's during that time period and she lived you know, just in the first century uh, BC, as we would say, or BCE, and that was where she was. She was in a very specific, specific, very important time period. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about the family um, in this particular story. Uh, the foreword of the book talks about that uh, she's the only lawful female ruler in Jewish history. Um, but there's not a book of the Bible that speaks to her, right? I mean, there's mm -hmm. nothing... You had to sort of draw, I did notice in the book when I was reading at the beginning of some chapters, you did have some references to uh, different sections of the Bible, but they weren't complete discussions of her or her time period, anything like that. So how did you, how did you pull this information together to create this story? That's that's the great thing about the treasure hunt. You know, if you enjoy that kind of hunting, it's kind of like, like uh, putting together your argument before the court as a trial lawyer, <laughs> you know, uh, it really came down to, I springboarded off uh, Professor Atkinson's article that he had written in that archaeological magazine about seven years ago. He wrote uh, some of his things and, and he pieced them together from, I don't know where, but I contacted him and said, you know, I wanted to know more about her. 
And he shared with me a lot of his work, which he had not made public. And then he did release a book about her. Uh, it is a nonfiction book. So it's very, some people would say it's very historic, historical and, and some people don't like reading those kind of things. So a lot of that information came from him. It was really great. But then also we have the Jewish historian Josephus, who has written a lot about, you know, Jewish history. And so he speaks about Shalom Zion, but you have to kind of take him with a pinch of salt. He didn't like women. Uh, he attributes women's, you know, things to the male characters instead. Like, we don't even know what Josephus' wife's name was, you know. I mean, he was married. He never mentioned her. And so went into to him and then into other scholars who had written a little bit about Shalom Zion, but I had to make an informed decision. And that's the beauty, and that's, I think, what Professor Atkinson was alluding to, that as a historical fiction writer, you're not bound just by the history. If I'm a historian, I'm bound by the history. If I'm an author who's writing history into fiction, I'm not bound by just the plain facts. So I had to make a decision and I leaned very much towards Professor Atkinson's understanding of who she was because he saw her as a very strong female character, not as though she was a secondary citizen only to the men in her life. So I had to decide how I was going to write it. Maybe someone else would have written her in a different way. But uh, I also leaned very heavily into Judaism for this. Uh, I have uh, I uh, have a Jewish father. I was six years in you know in a Jewish synagogue, and I learned Hebrew, and I understand Judaism from an inside perspective. So I leaned into what they believe and think about her as well. And you know, she is actually a venerated figure in Judaism. There's even a road named after her in Jerusalem. So her, she's upheld very high, and so. I played into that very much for this book. Yeah, and this is a bit of a love story delayed because uh, the the man that she is truly in love with, she can't marry because she's subject to an arranged marriage to her cousin, uh, which, uh, you know, and yet she's being trained by her father to be someone special. She's being trained in the art of war. She's being trained academically. Um, so she's a perfect match for someone, at least her father thinks, to help in, you know, the influence of their own family. Uh, but let's talk a little bit about that story and that uh, arc there, because you've got a read you're going to do that's a little bit further in the book. Um, she gets into this arranged marriage. Um, her, I, I guess her father's reign was a bit tyrannical. There's a lot of war. There's a lot of corruption. Uh, of course, it's the men who are doing this, right? Mm. <laughs> and, so, and, and she has this desire to create a more, you know, I guess, peaceful world. And yet it's going to take a sword to get there. Talk a little bit about the arc of this story. Hmm. You know what? All of those facts are truly true that you just mentioned. You know, this was a very hard time period for the people. And we do know, and Josephus writes, that the people really didn't like her husband, who was her cousin, Alexander. And it, it really was. That is why it is so specific and necessary for us to say that because the reality that her husband who was quite an abusive paranoid tyrant of a man historically he leaves the reign to her when he has two grown sons who are probably in their 40s already and this had never been done before you know so that was that speaks to how powerful and how influential she really was but the arc of the story that comes in with a bit of the love story as well is that, that is a total fiction piece. That is probably the one part of the story that is fiction. And I actually wanted to write her without that because I like the 
I like the stories where women save themselves and uh, where there's a big discussion today about should we write stories where it's around love, you know, or should women be content to be on their own? And I, I agree, there should be those stories. But I also, as just from a humanity perspective, I wanted her to have a happy ending um, in my book. I don't know if she had a happy ending in real life. I don't know. Her, her, it didn't seem like she had a very good marriage historically, and she really put her life on the line for her people. She was always trying to, you know, help them, save them, whether they were trying to kill each other. She was hiding people. That's that's historical fact. She's hiding them, and she's making sure that everybody's okay, and she's bringing peace between everybody despite her own life. And I really wanted her to have a happy ending. So I did introduce a character, which is completely fictional, Yaakov, who was her tutor, and that she truly loved. And they they have to have this story and this right. So that was a bit of a, just wanted her to be happy. Yeah. Well, I also noticed that there was there were some scenes in the book where she is uh, negotiating with uh, the, the Queen of Egypt. Now, is, is there some historical fact involved in that? Yes, absolutely. That's, so that's completely historical. Uh, th th this was actually a time period when the queens of the ancient Near East were very, very powerful. You know, Cleopatra Selene, Cleopatra III, they were all in leadership and rulership there. So everything that you will see me write in this book about them is completely true. And, um, you know, the queen of Egypt, she had rulership over Judea. Her army was standing ready, you know, when Shalem Zion's husband, Alexander, was still the king. The queen of Egypt, she she had power. She could have just killed everybody and she lets them keep the, the land. And her daughter does become very good friends with Shalem Zion. And so Shalem Zion and Cleopatra Selene, who is very well known in, in history, they become actually good friends. And that is history. And I owe that fact to Professor Atkinson for bringing that up. He really went deeply into the narratives of the ancient Near Eastern queens to discover how very powerful they really were. And uh, Cleopatra Selene gets killed in the book. And that is a historical fact. Uh, that what happens in the book, and I'm not going to tell you about it. You can go and read sure. it. It really did happen, uh, and she was she was really killed in a very intense way to show the honor of what it meant to actually kill Cleopatra Selene. Because if you didn't care about your enemy, you just killed them in the battlefield and that was it. But if they have a death where they paraded through the streets and where it's this big ceremony, you know that that person who is taking their life, who is another ruler, taking another ruler's life, they see it as an honor to kill somebody. So Cleopatra Selene went down like that. And it did affect Shalem Zion, and they were very good friends. And the armies really did help each other uh, when it was necessary. So that was a very true historical fact. All right, great. Well, let's let's do your read now. Can you set this up for us? Uh, tell us what's going on at this point in the book, and then uh, and then read it for us. Okay, so Shalem Zion's husband is lying on his deathbed, and he just declares that if anything really does happen to him, his army is now positioned. Uh, on a battlefield by a big city and they're about to attack the city and they're about to take it. But he, Alexander, is back home in, on his deathbed in Jerusalem and he just declares that if anything happens to him, 
Shalem Zion is going to be queen of Israel. It's the first time that a queen has ever got that position, a woman. And even though he has two grown sons, he just declares this. But he's not dead yet, but he declares if it happens, it happens. And so she decides she's going to go and join the army. She's already about 63 years old at this stage. She's going to go and join the army. This is going to be her first real battle, really, with a sword. And she goes and she joins him on the battlefield. And this is where we get to, and this is the part that I really wanted to read to you today. The silver swords smashed against each other hungrily. The blades of metal fought to stay in the air. The blind desire to stay alive was the only force strong enough to keep the blood-drenched soldiers from falling over. Shalomi leapt from her horse and drove her sword deep into the torso of another soldier. His eyes rolled and his eyelids fluttered as he lurched forward into a pile of lifeless skin on the muddied grass. The battle had waged for close to two days. Weariness tugged at her skin and left her muscles aching beneath the weight of her armor. She paused to catch her breath. The enemy ranks were scattered weakly on the field, falling fast, while the banners of Israel waved wildly in the wind, finally free to lift their heads as the fallen soldiers made way for the wind to move onto the field. Diego's her commander, stood to her left, swinging a javelin into the bodies and lungs of the enemy soldiers. Surrounded by a circle of dead bodies, Shalomi paused to catch her breath, but a soldier lunged towards her abruptly. His heavy hammer crashed against her breastplate and forced the wind from her lungs. He was desperate to take her life. His eyes flashed anger and hatred through the narrow slit in his helmet. Her movements felt robotic but natural as her empty mind blocked his eyes from her senses. She turned towards him, struggling to breathe. Glimpsing a missing piece of armor over his right leg in a thick line of solidified blood, Shlomi moved quickly. Forcing her heel down into his wound, her arms brought her sword down into his neck and he fell to the ground as triumphant cries rang out amidst the sound of the trumpets of retreat. Soldiers dropped their banners and ran blindly towards the arms of the dense forest behind them. Diego, Shlomi shouted above the clamor. Send in a battalion after those men and take some as hostages. Diagos leapt to his feet and shouted the orders to his men who charged after the fleeing troops. Okay, so there's a bit of excitement there. It's almost like a, a Braveheart type of thing mm-hmm. <laughs> going, going on here, but, but but with a woman in charge. And, and yet in this one, unlike in Braveheart, she she wins the day. They win that battle. And the as I recall from the book, the troops are ecstatic that she is their queen and leader at that point uh, after the scene you described on her husband's deathbed. So a little bit of writing life discussion here for just a second. Um, you've written different kinds of books. Um, what was your goal, Arn, in writing this particular book? Uh, that is, what was the mission of this particular project for you? I think that the goal was really, I guess some would say it's a big, was a big goal. Uh, my My goal was really to put somebody back into their historical conscience of people that she should be that she should have and I I I wouldn't say I think that that sounds big because it sounds like now I'm trying to change the world's mindset but I think that one by one we can change people's mindset so I wanted to put her back into the framework and say that this was a historical woman it's kind of like putting a piece back onto the shelf and saying this is where they need to be so that was my highest goal. And I think that it continues because I just did an amazing podcast about a month ago, a woman's history podcast. And 
uh, just speaking about her from a historical point, it wasn't about the book. And it had like something ridiculous, like thousands and thousands of downloads within the first little bit. And they sent me an email saying that people are listening and people are hearing her story. And that's really just what I wanted to do. So this is the book, but also then speaking about her to people as well. So that was my ultimate goal. Yeah, that's great. And so another question I've got, it kind of ties writing to what people do when they're not writing. You're also an ordained pastor, and I'm curious as to how your faith belief, uh, you know, guided you on this journey as well. Did it did it interfere? Did it support? Uh, did it get in the way? Did it help? So to talk about that a little bit. That's a really good question, and it's an interesting one. I think that, you know, it was really my faith that led me to this journey. I've reflected on this a number of times as people have asked me questions because I, I'm an egalitarian or what many people would say, a biblical feminist. I believe in the in the ultimate um, equality of women as, as it's identified in the Bible. So I think that my faith really informed what I did. And like I said earlier on, I really started out my journey. Uh, I had a lot of people wanting me to teach them about the woman of the Bible. And because I had a little bit of an upper, upper hand from coming from a Jewish background, being able to... To, to speak Hebrew, read it, write it, understand ancient Hebrew, and being to Israel, knowing all of that and knowing the history and the context and the culture, which is what I always say, the Bible is a spiritual and sacred text to many, but it's also a historical text and we have to understand the history. So it was really just getting to women in the Bible's lives and understanding them from their perspective, not from mine, um, not from a 21st century mindset, just from theirs. And then that kind of because I was teaching on them every single week and a magazine in the States also asked me to have a column where I would write bi-monthly about women in the Bible. I did that for about three years. I was having to sojourn with all of these women consistently and uh, that my faith led me to do this. I don't, I never believed I could write a full length book. You know, when you're used to writing essays, it's two pages, three pages, maybe six at the most. Writing 80,000 words is very daunting. So it was my faith that really informed this and, and helps me go forward. And now now it's it's almost unstoppable. Uh, I have written a new book, um, but it's for little girls about the bold, brave Bible girls, um, for little tweenies, you know, just showing that women were also strong and brave and that they did, go, you know, great things. So that faith has really informed that. And I just hope it It just kind of feels like it's it's um, getting a bigger and bigger snowball, which is a good thing. So what do you think, um, having done this work, uh, the influence of this woman was, uh, in the course of, uh, you know, religious history, what, what what do you think her, you know, her biggest accomplishments were? I think her biggest accomplishments were, and if you read uh, in the Talmud, which is obviously Jewish oral law, they the rabbis were very, didn't write a lot of good things about women either. Uh, so when they do, we need to kind of take notice because they are really being sincere. But they wrote and said that her reign was so great and she was such a great human being that rain would fall from one Sabbath to another and obviously Sabbath being sacred. And they said that, you know, the land was blessed. The famine that the land had was broken. The crops increased and people were at peace. And I think that that was what the people at that stage were really longing for. 
and it was a she really had a huge historical impact, but a religious impact as well. They had seven years where they really enjoyed life, you know, where their their crops were good and the land was at peace. And they really, it was just an island in time. And they also referred to her reign as a golden age, very much like that of King David, which we know everybody loves King David, right? You know, whether you're Christian or Jew, you just love love David and his legacy. But the rabbis say that her reign was like his and it was so profound. And so that is why it's sad that we have forgotten about her because if she had such a profound impact on people and religious as well as historical truths, then I think that we can, you know, sort of pay attention to her story. And maybe there's a lot that we will never know about her life, but a little bit that we do, we can really say she had a huge impact and showed us what it could be like if we were, you know, at peace and if things were okay, which we all long for inside of ourselves, you know, that sense of normality and and it being okay and not having a corrupt, crazy government, if that's what we have, like in South Africa. So I think that it, it was a profound example that she said for us. That's great. And you're a very vocal about injustice and uh, you host a, your own social justice show on national radio in South Africa. Uh, and you're dealing with all these issues like gender side and gender-based violence and child brides and female education, all of which uh, are themes that surface in the Bible. And uh, I'm just wondering, do you, do you have another book in mind? Are you ready to take on another 80,000 words that uh, might take on another character in the Bible to, to trumpet uh, some of these issues? <laughs> yes, I do. Um uh, so I have the 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 book coming out for young young girls, uh, you know, this year, twenty twenty still, and a lot of even though it's for young girls, it has themes that run in the book, as well that talks about um, actually human trafficking and stuff like that. Just but but in a very nice way. But yes, I would love to. I have no idea when that's going to happen because I've been given the task now of doing a chapter book on uh, women's history. It's not religious at all. It's about a slave girl that really did come to Cape Town and uh, how she grew to be one of the matriarchs of the city. So incredible being a slave and then that narrative as well. So busy working on that at the moment, but I definitely want to take on another book like this. And one of the characters that I really want to actually write about is, is also a very lesser known is uh, Queen Helena of a, of a small kingdom called Adiabin. And she became, they were, you know, just kind of like Ira Iranians, you know, today it's a, the, that city is in Iraq. And so that's where they would live. And they were, you know, kind of, we can say like Persians, just that whole influence, but she converted to Judaism and uh, she had this profound, you can still see her tomb. If you go today, her sarcophagus is in the Louvre museum. She was very, very well known in the ancient Near East and also slipped from history. So I think that her story is one I'd love to take on one day. Uh, but I think I'd like to go, to Iraq first <laughs> to see what it actually looks like because you know we don't know a lot about we know a lot about her and her family and how they impacted Judaism because they became Jews even though they were royalty which was incredible back in the day um, but we, we need to know about the life they lived before that as well we just do not know much about that kingdom of Adiabene it was very small so I would like to take on her story because it's a story worth telling there's a lot of juice in it there's a lot of meat in it that we know so that I hope that that will happen, but I have no idea when. Yeah, well, I think it's great that you're doing your, your work here. And uh, I have so many more questions, but we're out of time. I want to thank you 
for being on the show. Listeners, we're going to have uh, more information about Lauren in the show notes, uh, her website links and social media. You can actually connect and find out more about what she's doing. Lauren, thanks for being my first uh, international guest and for, you know, thanks to the internet for uh, helping <laughs> us do this all the way where you are. And I am just thanks. Thanks for being on the show. It's been so great. Thank you so much, Landis, for actually having me and for yeah taking that leap and being like, I'm going to have the South, that crazy South African on my show. <laughs> but thank you so yeah. much. It's been so great. Yeah. Well, that's it for today. Another fine author giving voice to the written words. Next Tuesday, we'll have another in-depth episode with readings and conversations about the written word and the writing life of a local or regional author. But before then, be on the lookout for another Under the Covers episode where we do much the same thing we do here, but quicker and sometimes away from the studio. Because there are just too many good authors. And not enough time. If you like what we're doing, please consider leaving a short written review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Because when you do, our authors' voices travel much farther and wider in podcast land. And if you're inclined to help us help authors give voice to the written words, and you'd like some member-only content cultivated by our authors and me as our thanks, please consider becoming a member supporter. You can find out how to become a member supporter and more about today's show and all previous episodes at charlottereaderspodcast.com. And you can keep up with news about the show by joining our email list and engaging with us on social media. We promise not to spam you because, well, that takes too much time. And if you do join our email list, we'll give you a free ebook written by me. Thank you for listening. We really appreciate it. Until next week. I'm Landis Wade for Charlotte Readers Podcast. Charlotte Readers Podcast is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Now offering video visits so you can take control of your orthopedic care from the comfort of your home. Schedule online at orthocarolina.com. Ortho Carolina, you improved.